If you have your Bibles, we're ready for Mark chapter 10 today. Super excited. Tons of uh, amazing, powerful stuff in Mark chapter 10. We're dealing with the M&Ms today. And I'm not talking about them little chocolate candies. I'm talking about marriage and money. So two subjects that are, that are bound to step on somebody's toes in here today. So get out your, heart, your, your steel toe boots and just be ready. I'm going to, at some point... Step on everybody's toes today, but that's what the Word of God is supposed to do. The Word of God is supposed to challenge us. It's supposed to change our lives. It's supposed to, we're supposed to live our lives in reflection to God's Word. You know, I want to tell you something about Jesus. Jesus was the greatest teacher that ever lived. Now, you might say, duh, like he was God, right? Like, if he's God, you think one of the skills he might have, besides walking on water and taking money out of fish's mouth and you know, calming the seas just for fun and making the rain stop when he wants, but that, that he would be able to teach. And, and he used so many different um, avenues, so many different styles and, and, and illustrations. And he, that's one of the reasons why he taught in parables and he used word symbols and pictures. And, and today in Mark chapter 10 is just one of the many facets or styles of, of the way that Jesus so craftily communicated the word of God. And, and so he's going to use paradoxes today. You say, what's a paradox? You know, not unlike or similar to a parable. For example, a, a, a man and his son were driving in a car and had a terrible accident. The father died immediately on the scene. And the son had, had serious injuries and was rushed to the hospital. As he went into the surgery, the doctor came into the room and the doctor looked at the boy who needed surgery badly and said, I can't operate on him. He's my son. Well, who's the doctor? You don't think that way, but the doctor is his mom. And so Jesus, you know, taught in, in paradoxes and such. And we're going to get four or five of those here in Gospel of Mark in chapter 10, where Jesus just uses a little different style to help us understand or, or teach something. You know, Jesus actually had to hold back in his teaching. And that's why he oftentimes taught this way. You know, the reality is, or the argument is, if, if Jesus was God, which he was, and is in the flesh, could he not have made an argument so compelling that those who didn't want to believe would believe? Could Jesus have been convincing enough in his argument, in his explanation, in his understanding that, that people would just naturally have to be compelled to believe in God and believe in Jesus? Absolutely. But, but he didn't do that. He taught in such a way to respect those who wanted distance. And just like today, he respects the distance that you desire from him. You know, and I've talked to men, I've talked to men recently and, you know, and, and as they've been coming to church here for a while and, you know, just feeling that this church is about relationship with Jesus and growing in Jesus and getting close to Jesus and stepping out in Jesus and being a witness for Jesus and it kind of scares them a little bit. And they're just honest with me and they just say, you know, I don't, I'm afraid I don't want to be a Jesus freak. You know, I believe in God. I want to go to heaven, but you know, I, I don't want to get, and I just tell them, you don't have to worry. Jesus is not going to get closer to you than you want him to be. And if you want to keep him at arm's length, believe me, he'd be happy to stay right there. And he's just going to stay there. And every morning he's going to be there for you. And he's going to say, I'm here. If you want me to come closer, I will. If you want me to come into your life and be more a part of your life, I'm right here to be more a part of your life. You know, and we, we make time for him or we don't make time for him. And we leave him in the, in the, in the, in the library. And, you know, he wants to meet with us there in the morning. And you, you, you go and you meet with him in the morning and you spend those devotions with Jesus and you draw close to him. And then that day comes every couple of days and you... You go upstairs and you get ready and Jesus is in the basement waiting early for devotions with you and to spend time with you. And you, you go right past that room and you leave the house for the day and you forget to stop there. And, you know, weeks go by like this. And, you, you know, a couple of weeks later you pass and you stop and you look in the study and there he is. He's still sitting there like a perfect gentleman just waiting for you. And you're like, 
well, I thought you would have left by now. He said, no, I'm here. We can pick up where we left off. We, we, we can hang out. We can spend time this morning. And, and so Jesus is not going to be closer to you than you want him to be. He's not going to impose on the boundaries that you want to set. But what happens is the closer you want Jesus in your life, the more you want relationship and, and friendship. And, and to, with Jesus, it only, it only becomes like a snowball rolling downhill where you just want more and more and more of it. So in Mark chapter 10, now last week in Mark chapter 9, we, we saw Jesus gives us several like, um, you know, big things that are, that are turn, turn world up on, on its head, turn everything upside down from what we think. He said last week, he said, if you want to be first, then you have to be the biggest, baddest dude in the neighborhood. No, he said, if you want to be first, you have to be last. He said, if you want to be the greatest of all, then you have to learn to be the toughest, meanest, smartest. No, the servant of all which is completely opposite, right? Of anybody in the corporate world or any other world, it's like that, that's the worst thing in the world you could ever want to be as a slave or a servant. Jesus said, if you want to be great in the kingdom of God, you have to become like a little child. Jesus said in, 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 the, in the seriousness of sin, he said, if your eye causes you to sin, then pluck it out. If your arm causes you to sin, then cut it off in, in eradicating the seriousness of getting rid of sin in your life. And that brings us right into Mark chapter 10, where he's going to talk about marriage. He's going to talk about children. He's going to talk about divorce. And he's going to talk about money. And it says, um, then he arose from there and he came to the region of Judea by the other side of the Jordan. And multitudes gathered to him again. And he was accustomed as, and he taught them again. So I've asked you guys to underline as we go through the gospel of Mark, highlight a certain word in the gospel of Mark. If you're following along with me from the beginning, what is it? In verse number 10, he taught them, he's teaching them. And so Jesus' custom was, as he was accustomed, he taught them. And and so we we try to follow Jesus' model of teaching, of Jesus' model of knowing what it is in your life that will change your life for, 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 for the truth and for the gospel and for good. It's the word of God. And so the Apostle Paul says in the New Testament, he said, I've not shunned to declare to you the entire counsel of God's word. And, and that's the instruction that we've tried to follow at Calvary Chapel. The reality is, you know, I, I could teach you one little couple verses every Sunday in this little feel-good sermon, and I could pick the best places in the Bible. And if I, if I just gave you a few little verses every time you came, how long would it take us to, to get the entire counsel of God's word? You never would is the answer. And so we take, if, the way it is now, it, it'll take us about seven years to go through the entire Bible on, on Sunday mornings and Wednesday nights through the Old and New Testament. You know, the, the, the thing is, when you, when you study the Word of God, you really need the entire counsel of God's Word so you don't get off in left field. And all kinds of people have all these weird doctrines and many things they think the Bible says or, or you know, they ask you all the time, well, the Bible says this or this guy believes this and that guy believes that. But really, the only way you're going to know what's true and what God's desire and will is for your life is to take into consideration the entire counsel of God's word. Let's take the poor, for example. The Bible tells us that, that, that we're to do good to all mankind, especially for those in the household of faith. Especially for those that are born-again believers within our household of faith, responsibility is to them first, but do good to all mankind. Feed the poor, widows and orphans, right? And so if, if that's the only part of the word of God that we focus on and we study and we don't take into consideration the entire counsel of God's word, we could miss what really God's will is because the New Testament tells us if a man will not work, neither shall he eat. That's not Old Testament. That's New Testament. 
And not, not, not that if somebody can't work, but there is a responsibility for those who will not work. And, and as a church, we don't have a responsibility for those that, that are capable body to work and are just lazy and won't work. So the Bible says, for, if a man will not work, neither shall he eat. So you take these, these two truths from the Word of God and you have to put them together in the entire counsel of God's Word. So we um, studied Mark chapter 9 last week, Mark chapter 10 this week. We're just going to take and go through and study the Word of God to get the entire counsel of God's Word. You know, you, you can make the Word of God say anything. Just take the battery out, Kim, and it'll stop ringing. <laughs> I won't call you out in church if your phone rings unless you're Kim. Unless I see you over there trying to, trying to fool with the battery in the middle of church. Like, if it was Karen, okay, I could get it. Like, she, she's still a little electronically challenged, but you couldn't figure out how to silence your cell phone, so you had to take the battery out. <laughs> all right so where were we yes so you you can make the bible say anything you want it to say that's the reality right the bible says in one place judas hung himself in another place it says go and do likewise do those two go together is that god's will for your life go and hang yourself obviously not but you some of them i think well after my cell phone rings in church it might be but <laughs> but it's not god's will for anybody's life it's really not. And, 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 how, and so you, you, but I've heard sermons. I've heard some of them, them TV pastors with some doozies. There's one Frederick Price or Dollar Creflo Dollar, one of them guys on the, you know, TBN. And, and I'm listening to this masterfully crafted sermon, very well done. And he's teaching faith, hope, and love. The greatest of these is love. It says that in, in Corinthians, faith, hope, and love. The greatest of these is love. And the guy spends 45 minutes going through passages and explaining them and making them make sense and you're feeling it. And then in the very end, he says, you see, faith, hope, and love. The greatest of these is faith. And I'm going, don't, what'd you just say? And I knew enough to know that I could read it right here and it says faith, hope, and love. The greatest of these is love. But he weaved it and made it say what he wanted it to say. And without the entire counsel of God's word at your disposal, and that's why the other thing, we, we always encourage you guys, read your Bible and pray every day. You guys can be deceived. We can be deceived. The only way you're going to keep from deception is if you have a working knowledge of what God's Word says. That you can go in and you can read it and understand it and know it and know Jesus through His Word. You won't be deceived that way. You won't have to worry about it. You know, you can go to a church and the pastor can, can love Jesus and have a little weird theology on a certain area or something and you know, so what? You probably have the same thing. But you, you know enough that you can pick that stuff out and you can chew the meat and spit out the bones and you can worship with, with believers that have, you know, but, but you're not going to be led astray into weird doctrine. So in teaching the Word, and that's the Calvary model. That's why we just try to stay in the Word of God. Amen? And that was the example that Jesus gave us as He taught them again. So the Pharisees came in chapter 2, or in verse 2, and they asked Him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife, testing him? And he answered and he said, what did Moses command you? Really quick, if you want, turn with me to Deuteronomy 24 or hold there and I'll be right back to Matthew. Deuteronomy 24, first verse. So Jesus asked, the, the, the Pharisees came up to Jesus as they normally did and they said, hey Jesus, is it lawful to divorce your wife? Knowing that no matter what he says, they, they, they took time because they tried to trap Jesus and they realized that it wasn't easy. And they were going to come with some lame argument, some lame question and, and, and he, was, he was very good. And so they really took time crafting and thinking about these, these challenges that they would pose to Jesus before they brought him. So they think they have one. And they come to Jesus and they ask him about the issue of divorce. 
And so Jesus first responds and he says, what did Moses command you? So I want to take you guys to Deuteronomy 24, where we see exactly what Moses commanded them and what, what information they had. In, verse tw- in chapter 24, verse 1 of Deuteronomy, it says, When a man takes a wife and marries her, it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanliness in her. And he writes her a certificate of divorce and he puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house. So that's what Moses said about divorce. If a husband finds uncleanliness in his wife, he can write her a bill of divorce and and send her out of his house. Now, women, I want to just start by prefacing this by telling you that that Jesus has done more for the position of women than any other thing in, 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 in the world. Jesus has elevated the position of women to their rightful place. There, there is a position, a godly position, a biblical position between a man and a wife. A husband is called the head of the home. And the wife is to respect her husband. The husband is called to love his wife as Christ loved the church and laid his life down for her. We have many examples. We have our, our greatest example of Abraham and Sarah in the Bible who were, who were a picture of what a godly, healthy marriage looks like. The Bible records for us that, that Sarah called Abraham Lord as, as a term of respect. And she respected her husband and she spoke to him with respect. That's New Testament biblical wives respect your husbands. And then it also says that another time that, that God says to Abraham, hey, hey, knucklehead, listen to your wife. She's right and you're wrong. Listen to your wife. She's giving you good advice. And, and there was a, a, a relationship between a husband and a wife and an example of Sarah and Abraham. But anywhere in the world where you go, where Jesus is not, what do you find the position of women? Any idea? How about Africa? Let's start there. Seriously, what do, what do, what do women do in Africa? Do they, do they carry water pots on their head? Is that just something on Nat Geo or is that real? That, that, that's, that's what real life today in 2016 in Malawi, Africa. We have a mission there. And Pastor Gerald, I've never been. I'm hoping to go. Pastor Gerald says the women carry, and they have this towel thing they put on their head, big, huge pots of water because they don't have running water. And the women carry water. And Pastor Gerald says to some of the teenage boys, 16, 17-year-old healthy teenage boys, like, dude, your mom's carrying that water. Why don't you go help her? <laughs> like they think he's kidding. Like they just culturally, it's a, it literally is a joke. Like they, they didn't know he was serious. He was really serious. Like go help him. And they're like, no, that's women's work. We're not going to carry the water. H- how about being a woman in Saudi Arabia? Yeah. You want to be a Muslim ladies? Knock yourself out. I mean, the, the, the place of women, it, 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 where Jesus is, it's been elevated to the rightful place and where it's supposed to be. And, and that's what Christianity is bringing. And when you have Christianity, you know, some of us Christian men were like, well, how did we mess this up? They carry the water, they cover their face, they, they do what they're told, but <laughs> I'm going to hide behind the <laughs> but, but it's true, right, that, that, that Jesus brings the rightful place. And, and with Adam and Eve, again, there's, there's, a, there's, there's, there's a head and a follow and a leadership, but it's not, you know, women are told to submit to their husbands. But it's not like the WWE or MMA where, you know, I got you in a chokehold woman and you'll submit to me. It's not like that. That's not the submission that the Bible talks about. <laughs> the Bible talks about the Bible talks about a woman who, who wants to submit to her husband because he, she knows that he has her best interests at hand. 
and that that woman loves, that that husband loves his wife as Christ loved the church. And when he makes a decision concerning her and their family, he has her best interests at hand and she has no problem submitting to him. She has no problem following his leadership. And I'll tell you something, men, ladies don't want a, a guy who won't, won't lead. They want to follow. They're, they're built to follow. They want to follow somebody who has their best interests at hand, who loves them, who wants to lead their family in, in those relationships. And so the, the women, so that was kind of parenthetical to where we are. Don't forget, we're in Deuteronomy 24. And, and men were able to divorce women, but women were not able to divorce men, even in Old Testament covenant, Old Testament law. And, and the only reason that Moses said that they could divorce, he, he didn't really give us, he just said, if a man finds an uncleanliness in their, in their wife, they can write her a, a bill of divorce. Now, now again, in the law of Moses, the certificate of divorce was meant to be a blessing for the woman. God put that in the law to protect the women. Because if a husband just divorced his wife and left her out there and she's still married to him, but he's with somebody else now, then, then she couldn't get remarried and nobody would provide for her and she'd have to result to who knows what kind of means to provide for herself and take care of herself. So God allowed this divorce. And, and, and according to the Mosaic law, the, the law of Moses, when she had a, a, a bill of divorce, she was free then to go on with her life. She could remarry without sin. She could, she could go on and, and get remarried and, and enjoy life and, and, and be clean. And, and so it was meant as a blessing. So in the New Testament, the, at the time of Jesus, then the Pharisees, they start arguing. And, and they have two different schools of what, is, what did Moses mean when he said, you can divorce your wife if you find an uncleanliness. So the real ultra-liberal rabbi and the, and the liberal school said that uncleanliness meant if your wife burns your toast in the morning, she's unclean and you could get rid of her. If she oversalts your, your toast, man, don't smile too hard like, yeah, like this is good stuff. Just chill out. You can't. So that, that you could divorce your wife. The, the, the conservative group said no. The only thing that would constitute uncleanliness is if on the wedding night you found out she wasn't a virgin. Now, that doesn't, that's not talking about adultery. Adultery is not even mentioned, right? Because the, the Old Testament law of Moses dealt specifically with adultery, right? If, if you were caught in the act of adultery, what was the crime? Or what was the, the penalty? Not with weed, right? Like you're going to die because they're going to throw rocks at you until you die. Stoning. So adultery is not even mentioned. It's just not, not, not thought of. Punishment by death. And so this is dealing with on the wedding night you find out She's there. So the conservative class says very little reason to find uncleanliness in your wife. The liberal class says, you know, anything constitute uncleanliness. The liberals even went as far as to say, if you find a woman who's more clean than your wife, then, then, you, then that constitutes an uncleanliness in your wife and you can write her a bill of divorcement. It, it became pretty, um, you know, laborsome within the, the, the rabbis dealing with divorce. And so they made it very simple. You just say to your wife three times, I divorce you, I divorce you, I divorce you. Then you go to the rabbi and you tell the rabbi what you've done. He writes you the certificate and you hand it to her and it's official. And so they asked Jesus and, and they asked, so Jesus first says, what did Moses say, and that's what Moses said. And they said in verse four, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and to dismiss her. So then Jesus said to them, because of the hardness of your hearts, he wrote to you this precept. So Jesus says to the Pharisees, yes, Moses allowed divorce because of the hardness of your hearts. God has a perfect will and he has a permissible will. And in your life, Sometimes there's things that God allows and he redeems and he uses you and he blesses you despite of it, but it's not his perfect will for your life. 
It's his permissive will or passive will because he loves his children and we sin and he's chosen to love us in spite of our sins and through our sins. And if he threw us away when we sinned, he, I guess he realized there wouldn't be much of us left or wouldn't be too many of us left. And so he made provision in the law. He made provision in his love that, that, that even if they don't do exactly what's my perfect and best will for them, I'm going to love them anyways. So your children, they, they, they want to do something. They say, Dad, I'm, I'm graduating high school and you know, I really, I, I'm, I'm going to go on. I'm going to join the Air Force and fly jets. And you're like, yes. And then they say, well, or I'm going to get a job at McDonald's flipping burgers. No. But I'm going to love them anyways. But, but, but what's best for them? What, what's my perfect will for them is join the Air Force, fly jets, don't go work at McDonald's. But, but God's provided for us a way that if we work at McDonald's instead of that, and not his perfect will, but his passive will, he's, he's going to provide for us. So that's what he tells the Pharisees. This is, not, this is because of the hardness of your hearts that this was allowed. And then, and then he says, go back, Jesus says, in verse <clears throat> number six, but from the beginning God created them male and female. For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become, are no longer one, but one flesh. So God tells the Pharisees that are asking him the question, he says, go back beyond before Moses to the garden, and that's the way I set it up, and that's my perfect will. Did Adam and Eve have an option of divorce? <laughs> well, if, if Adam decided she was unclean, where was he going to go? I think he probably checked out a couple of the apes and the donkeys and the, decided, hey, I'm staying right here at home. I'm not going anywhere. Because there was nowhere else to go, but divorce was not an option. It wasn't thought of. It wasn't named. It wasn't a part of God's will or God's plan. And God says, you know, that the two shall become one flesh. God's will is, is, that, is that marriage is for life and that you marry and that you don't divorce. God says he hates divorce. He says that in Malachi. And God doesn't hate those who've gone through divorce, but God hates the pain and the cause of divorce and, and, and the effect of divorce. But God's perfect will for your life and my life is, is that we don't divorce and that we stay together at all costs. And so, actually, maybe not at all costs, but, but that, that we fight and that the, the key to, to marriage is divorce and divorcing yourself from the idea of divorce. And so, in marriage, it, it's unique. It's the only relationship in, in, in human nature, in human relationships, where two people literally become one flesh. The only place. You know, I have great relationships with my brother, with my mom, with my dad, with different, you know, cousins and, and people in my life, but only one relationship where two people literally become one flesh. And so in that, that, that that's not, it's God's will that, that, that the two don't separate. He goes on and he says in verse number nine, therefore what God has joined together, let not man separate. In the house to his disciples, he also asked them again the same matter. So we're going to go on, and, and then after they pull away from the disciples, the, the, uh, after they pull away from the Pharisees, the disciples are going to ask him another question. So let me, let me give you some marriage advice. Let me, let me tell you something, men, about your wives. Women are crazy. You, you, you ever see that, that book, All the Things I Know About a Woman? It's this big, huge book, and, you know, and, and this guy's all excited, and the title, Everything I Know About a Woman. And he opens it up, and it's page after page of blank paper. Like, oh, man. But I'll tell you, I know a couple things about women. Women relate to men um, emotionally. Women relate to, to you husbands um, emotionally. And they want, they, they want to know you emotionally. They want to talk to you emotionally. And then men, we relate very physically, right? All I need is, you know, sex, and I'm good. And I don't have to talk before or after or anything else. Light switch on, light switch off. I'm happy camper. 
Women are, are just the opposite. And they, they, they do that, but that's really not the, the way that they need to connect with you. They need to connect with you emotionally. And once they've connected with you emotionally, then, then they're happy to connect with you physically. And, and might even pretend like they like it. But, but that's not, that's not their, their desire or their need. Their need is to, to connect to you emotionally. And then the other thing it says that a, that, a, that a husband and wife should leave and cleave, a big principle in a biblical marriage, is that if you're on the married end and you have parents and in-laws, or if you are the in-laws and you have married kids, there's a healthy severance that, that happens when, when your kids get married or when you get married. You know, that when Lydia, got, when Lydia and I got married, you know, her parents told her, hey, after, after Saturday, after the wedding day, you're not welcome here anymore. You know, if, if, you, if you and Chris get in a fight, you're going to stay there and you're going to work it out. You can come home now on Friday, but after you say I do on Saturday, that's it. Don't, don't, you're not coming home after that. And, and there's a healthiness to that. No, you have to stay and work it out. You don't come home. And, you know, kids get in a fight. The married kids get in a fight. And one of them comes home and you cook them their favorite meal and you coddle them. And, you, you know, you're, you're just adding fuel to the fire and to the problem. Those two people, they're, they're now one flesh. And you, you got to let them work it out and send them home and say, no, you're, you, you work it out. And come up with a solution that's not a band-aid. It's the best, best solution for you. Lydia and her mom were, were super close. And every time Lydia and I would get in a fight, you know, she would, she would call her mom and tell her mom all the details of the fight and what a jerk I was and, you know, rightfully so, all the things that I did. And Lydia and I would have the opportunity to forgive and forget and kiss and make up. And, you know, I, I wasn't kissing my mother-in-law or make it up with her in that way. And so Lydia and I would be over it. It'd be done, you know, and, and she'd still be mad at me because of all the things that I did. And she would fester for a week or two. And it kind of came to the point where Lydia's dad, you know, she, he pulled us aside one day and he said, Lydia, you got to stop telling your mom all the details of the fight, you know, and you got to stop telling us there's certain things you can share and certain things you can't because it's just not healthy. And, and, and there, there is a leave and cleave that goes with that. And then for my wife who, who, who has this relationship with her mom and she just, she needs to talk. She needs to relate to me re- relationally. Men, men relate face to, uh, women relate face to face and men relate shoulder to shoulder. And so for a woman, she needs to connect with you emotionally. And how does she do that? Talk, 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 And it's work, right? And, and for a woman, she, she, for a man, it's work. And for a woman, it's, it's sometimes it's like spaghetti. It's like everything touches everything else and it's not rational all the time. And you're in this box and you're in this box and you're at work and then you're at the beach and then you're, you're back at work and then you're in the garage and then you're in a girlfriend's house and it's like just following and pretty soon you're just, you just give up. You can't do it, you know? And when we were, when we were first married, you know, Lydia would have this stuff all day and you know, my wife, she could talk really fast, right? So she would want to tell me all about her day and, and I was always trying to fix her, you know, and I'm a young pastor and, um, you know, fresh out of Bible college. And if she wasn't all perfect Christianese the way I thought she should have been, then I was trying to get her holy like I was, you know, and fix her all the time. And it never went well because it just was uncaring. And so then she would call her mom and I was like, oh, sweet. She can tell her mom all that stuff. And I could just watch ESPN. I could watch SportsCenter. I don't have to, I don't have to, you know, I don't have to listen. And it was good. She got her needs met and, and I was cool, you know. And I can remember there, there came a time in her married life where um, she, something really exciting in her, in her life happened. And she picked up the phone and she didn't know who she should call, me or her mom. And I can remember getting really jealous over that and brokenhearted and like, like I'm blowing it. Like I wanted to be that call. Like they, I wanted her to call, but I hadn't earned that. 
I hadn't, I hadn't worked for that. I hadn't, you know, for her, it was like she wanted to call somebody that she knew loved her and would listen to her and really cared about this information that she had. And she knew her mom would. But so, so at that point, it was like, okay, I, I got to start putting in that work. I have to start um, listening and, 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 and acting like I'm really interested in this whole story and, and really care for all these details of, of what she wants to communicate to me. And, um, you know, I don't want there to be a question. I want to be her best friend. And, and as we, we, we went on and, you know, um, got to the point, I think, somewhere in our married life where I can remember feeling like, you know, that really is my best friend and I'm really her best friend. And that's such a, a milestone in marriage when, when, when the two become one flesh and they're really best friends. But it's a lot of work. But I want to um, help you guys out really quick. I want to help you, you men out, you ladies out. Women, they have, when they want to talk to you, they have two modes. They have, they have just listen, just shut up and listen. And then they have fix it mode. But guys, we don't have shut up and listen mode. We don't have emotional connection mode. We, we just not wired that way. Like if my buddy comes to me and he starts telling me about the carburetor and the truck and this and that, like he's not just, call, just telling me this stuff to share his feelings with me about the carburetor. Like he, the only reason he's going to waste his breath telling me about it is because he wants me to help him try to figure out what tool he needs to fix it, right? And, and what, how to troubleshoot the problem. And so he's going to come to me and tell me about that. I'm gonna, we're going to walk it through. I'm going to give him some advice. So my, my wife comes and she has the same... Um, same information, you know, and, and, and I'm like, okay, I got to fix this. And I'm trying to fix it and give her solutions and cut her off. And like, dude, we could do this whole conversation in about this long and I could fix it for you. And then we could go watch sports center and, and it just doesn't work. And she's upset. And I'm like, oh, I'm trying to fix the problem, but she doesn't want me to fix the problem. She just wants me to listen. So now she comes and she wants to talk. And, and all of a sudden I'm like, I'm a man and I'm, I'm going to lose because I'm like, I don't know if I'm supposed to just listen. I don't know if I'm supposed to talk. I, I can't follow. I can't keep up. I'm going to lose. Forget it. I'm not even going to try. So, so we got to the point where she would let me off the hook and she would say, hey, I just need you to listen. And now I know, okay, I can relax. I can take a deep breath. I don't have to fix this one. She just wants to talk. She just wants to relate. So here's where I go into mode of, okay, I really got to make her think I'm really caring and I really love her and I'm so concerned with every part of her day and, and make her feel that way. And if I, if I want to hang out tonight at 10 o'clock, then, then I'm really going to do a good job here because that's where it matters. And so, so, you know, and then there's other times where she can just say, hey, you know, what do you think about this? And then I know, okay, I can input and, and, and relate. But again, men, women relate emotionally and they, they need to connect to you emotionally. And the way they do that is by talking and sharing with you. And so we got to strap in, we got to make them know we care. And then ladies, your men are real simple. Real, real simple, okay? There's only one way he res- he res- that, that you need to connect with your husband. Just show up naked, and then that's, that's all there is to it. For you kids that are in here, not tell you're married. I mean that. Um, all right, so where are we at? Let's go verse number 9 or 10. So... Yeah, no, you're going to talk about money next. We're going to get you with money next. So in verse number 10, so they went into the house and, and the disciples asked him in the same manner. And Jesus said in verse 11, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her, hus- against her. And if a woman divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. So this verse has um, oftentimes people want to know. They want to ask as a pastor. They want to come in. They've been divorced. 
they're remarried or they're going to get remarried. And, and, and according to just this verse, it says that they're going to live a life of adultery. And am I living in adultery if I remarry? And that, that, that's not what Jesus is saying. Do you guys remember the last chapter? Jesus is using some very strong language. And he says, if your right eye causes you to sin, do what? Pluck it out. If your right, right arm causes you to sin, cut it off. Okay? So that's strong language. Does Jesus really want you to cut your eye out, pluck your eye out, cut your arm off? Is that what he's saying? It's not what he's saying. He's using some strong language to help you understand the severity of, of ridding your life of sin and of how detrimental it is to get rid of that sin in your life. And, and so likewise, he's using some very strong language. But, but he'd already made provision in the Old Testament law. He made provision in the New Testament law. It's not God's will for you to get a divorce. If you're married in here today and your marriage is going through trouble, here's my advice to you. Stay married. Stick it out. You're going to be happier in five years for those who stick it out and who have, got, who have married. If you're divorced in here or remarried in here, there's a second chance. God can still use you. There's healing. There's, there's hope. There's no condemnation in Christ Jesus. You know, God proved that he loves and he can use broken situations. And, and he's not, he, he hates divorce for the pain that it causes, not the people that go through divorce. He doesn't hate the people that have gone or been through divorce or going through divorce. He, he hates the pain that it causes in every situation and in the kids. And so he, it, it's just not his perfect will. And there is sin. And, and, and there's sin and there's an understanding. And I think there's just a seriousness where he uses such strong language here about the fact that you'll be in adultery so that both parties just understand you don't enter into a new marriage lightly. And, and, and it's devastating if, if, you, if you've left a divorce situation with the idea that you were 100% wrong and you committed no sins and they cheated on you and they were terrible and, and which could all be true and it could be 90-10, it could be 99-1. But until you realize that there's two people in that relationship that divorce and that you have sin and that you have responsibility, you're going to enter a new relationship, the same broken person. And guess what's going to happen in the next relationship with the next spouse? It's going to be messed up because you brought yourself into the relationship and yourself was messed up. And yourself still had, had pain that, that wasn't healed from before and was, was still a cause of divorce in the last situation. And so I think there is a seriousness that Jesus wants us to understand that, that, that you have committed sin, but God will forgive and God will forget. But you repent like you would anything and you, you ask God to forgive you and you move on and you heal those things and you make sure you move forward into a new relationship with both eyes wide open in asking Jesus to heal and change that. You know, if you take two pieces of construction paper and you take Elmer's glue and you glue them together like you would for a school project and you put these two pieces of paper, construction paper together and you set them out in the hot sun for the length of the marriage and then every time that, that, that couple has a child, you take another piece of paper and you, you, you glue it onto the back of that, 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 those papers and then you have a divorce and you, set, you start to have to try to separate those papers and the kids. And what's going to happen? It's going to tear. Is there any way to do it cleanly? There's no way to do it cleanly. You know, that's why even, even secular studies. Duke University actually did a study. And they, they studied families who were going through hard times in their marriage. And then they studied five years later. Some divorced and some stayed together. And Duke University said the findings of their study was that those that stayed together were happier after five years, even when the marriage was, was terrible five years earlier. And those that divorced five years later were no happier than they were before. Sticking together and working it out because it's going to cause pain. And that's why Jesus uses this strong language. Once you divorce, the reality is every happy day in the future becomes a what? 
becomes a sad day. Who gets the kids on Christmas? You know, who, who, you know I've, I've done weddings before where the, the divorced parents of the, of the people getting married are, are so nasty to each other. They, they, they're fighting over, they can't even sit on the same row. They've got to be placed in different places in the thing so we can do a wedding. And the kids have this, just this pain of walking down the aisle, looking over both shoulders, knowing that, that the parents are so pissed and hate each other so much that they're, you know, they're causing, causing pain in this wedding. And so it's just painful. And I'm not condemning any of those situations or any of those people or situations that you might find yourself in. That's not the point. There's no condemnation in Christ Jesus. But the reality is, and you know it firsthand, it's painful, right? It causes trouble. So again, if you're married in here today, stay married. If, if, if you're divorced in here today, then, then you, you can um, be healed. God, God, God used four women in the genealogy of Jesus. What does that mean in the genealogy of Jesus? God in his divine nature and his perfect plan was going to bring a savior, a Messiah, his own son, born of a virgin. And there was a whole line of, of um, mothers, fathers, mothers, fathers from Mary and Joseph all the way back to Adam and Eve. A certain line that Messiah would come through, a bloodline that, that God would choose to be in the genealogy of Jesus. How'd you like that title? Who are you? I'm Jesus's grandma. I'm his great grandmammy. I'm his grandpa. Jesus is your grandson? But there's four women, only four women listed in the genealogy of Jesus. The first one is Tamar. Do you guys remember the story of Tamar? Tamar was a girl who dressed up as a prostitute and seduced her father-in-law, got pregnant by him, and then in a deceptive situation, exposed herself to her father-in-law as being pregnant from from his, his child. And the baby that was born from Tamar... It is the line that, that God chose. And then, and then the line goes through this little city, this pagan city called Jericho, where there's a, a, a hooker, a harlot, who lives in Jericho named Rahab. Now, now I, I don't know why. I guess it's just me. I, I'm not right. I'm going to repent after church. But every time I tell you guys this story of Rahab and being a harlot, like, I, I want it to hit, like, do you realize what I'm saying, what she did for a living? Can you picture what her bedroom or her house would have looked like on a nightly basis? Disgusting. Dirty. Men after men after men coming into her house. That's the person that Jesus chose to be his grandma. Who does that? Like if you get to choose who your great, great, great grandma is, I guarantee you as I'm falling the line back up, that Rahab chick is not one I'm picking. But God chose her. And he chose her for a reason. You know, he chose her because he can take broken things and he can make them whole. He can take broken situations. And then, you know, and then you look at, at, at Jesus. Who, who was the first person who showed up at the tomb Easter morning? Mary Magdalene, who herself was an easy rider. Who, who was cast out seven demons. And yet she was the first person that showed up at Jesus' tomb, life changed, life redeemed. She, she loved. The Bible says, who's forgiven much, loves much. And, and, and she was loved. And is that God's will for anybody's life? That's not God's will. Don't, I don't want to hear any excuses like, well, well, look who Jesus used these women. No, that's, that's not an excuse. That's not God's will for nobody's life. And, and the Bible says that if you, if you continue in such sins, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. It says that five times in the New Testament. That means hell, where it's hot. 
And so, so but God redeems and God can use broken situation and broken lives. And, and, and so God's perfect will is that you stay married. And, and God's permissive will and passive will is that God can use those who have gone through hard times and divorce. Amen? We better start talking about money. Um, in verse 13, it says, Then they brought little children to him that he might touch them. But the disciples rebuked those who were brought to them. But when Jesus saw it, he was greatly displeased and said to them, Let the little children come to me, and do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of God. In verse 13, it says, They brought the little children to him, right? Who brought the little children to Jesus? No, the disciples didn't. The disciples were the ones that forbade. The disciples were there going, huh, little kids, sorry, Jesus don't got time for you guys. Get out of here. And then Jesus gets upset and he says, hey, wait, 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 wait. Don't forbid the little children from coming to me. And he, and he brings them unto himself. But who brought the children to Jesus? It says they. So the parents. But, but the they there, it's actually the men. It's the fathers. Mothers weren't out bringing the babies to Jesus in this day. The fathers were bringing the children to Jesus. And, and it's very biblical. As, as a man, you are called to, to, to spiritually be the spiritual head of your family. And again, there's roles that God's laid out for a husband and a wife. And for you men, it's your role to lead your home spiritually. It's your call. It's your, it's your call. Now, not to say that mom doesn't have a huge part in raising godly children, but the call of God is upon the men to bring the children to Jesus. Did, will, will God, if, if a man won't step up, will God use a woman? Did God use a woman to be the judge of Israel, one of the prophets of Israel? You guys remember her name? Deborah? Because no man would step up, so God used a woman. So God's going to have his will. He's going to get it done. But God's perfect will for you men in your life, in your house, is that, is that you lead your house spiritually, that you're the spiritual leader of your home, and that you make sure your children are being raised up in the ways of the Lord. And then he goes on. And he says that, that they forbid him in verse 15. Or Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not forbid them for such is the kingdom of God. Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. And he took them up in his arms and he laid on them and he blessed them. A couple things here. I want to tell you something about Jesus. He, he, he was, um, I think he laughed often, smiled easy. I think he was very loving and inviting. And I'm sure he had a look on him that he was, he was friendly. You know, you, you bring a bunch of little children. If I let the little kids out of Sunday school and they ran around the room, I guarantee you there's some laps in here they're not going to be sitting on. They're going to be afraid to death of some of you guys out here. You just look, you look mean, you look grumpy. But, but Jesus wasn't that, not, not, none of you guys though. That's, um, Jesus wasn't that way. The kids were comfortable. One of the things you know about Jesus is because kids were comfortable around him. I bet you when they came in, I bet you he had them laughing. I bet you he did something, you know, and, and, and pulled a coin behind their ear, did something they thought was cool or funny, and, and that they laughed and they enjoyed him and he blessed them. And he cared about the little kids. And then he said, if you don't become like a little child, you can't inherit the kingdom of God. And so what does that mean? God give, gave children a gift that you and I don't have. Somewhere along, along growing up, we lose this gift that God gives. And it's a gift of childlike faith. You know, I could walk over to Sunday school right now and I could tell the third graders, hey, guess what? Jesus walked on water. Would I have to like explain the science behind him walking on water to the third graders? Would they believe that Jesus walked on water? Yeah, they would. They have a childlike faith that's a gift. That somewhere we develop cynicism and we lose that. And, and, and children, the thing about children is they can't explain much, but they enjoy much. They love much. They believe much. 
And, and, and that's, what, that's what God says to be like. Just have the faith of a child that believes, and it takes that. It takes that to, to, to follow Christ. It says without faith, it's impossible to follow, to, to, to please God. And so the children loved, loved Jesus. Jesus loved the little children. And it goes on to verse 17. It says, Now he was going on the road, and one came running and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do that I may have eternal life? So this, this one that's coming up is the rich young ruler. Now, the title in Mark, in my Bible, it says above it, rich young ruler. But I want to tell you that we get that from three different Gospels. If you didn't have these titles that the, that the publishers put in over these sections, we wouldn't know here that he was the rich young ruler. But in, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, each one gives us the same story. And one says that he's young, one says that he's a ruler, and one says that he's rich. And John doesn't give this, the account of the rich young ruler. And as you put those three different gospel stories together, you, you, you paint the picture that this man, young man was a rich young ruler. And he comes and he says to Jesus, good teacher. And, and Jesus says, why do you call me good? And basically, good teacher is implying that Jesus was God. And so Jesus is confirming to this young man that, that, that he is God and that you wouldn't call him good unless you knew and understood that he was God. And it says in verse 19, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. I'm sorry. Let's, let's back up. So you got to get the question. In verse 17, the man says, what shall I do that I may in- inherit eternal life? Is that a good question? Is that a good question? What must I do to inherit eternal life? In other words, what must I do to go to heaven? What must I do to be saved? What must I do to stay out of hell? I mean, that's a question you, you have to answer. That's a question we all want to have to answer. We want the answer to the question. Important question. What must I do? And then Jesus says in verse 20, I will also ask you one question. Nope. 19. 18. So Jesus said to them, Why do you call me good? No one is good but the one that is God. In verse 19, You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he answered and said to him, Teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. Then Jesus looked at him and loved him and said to him, One thing you lack. Go your way, sell whatever you have, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, take up the cross and follow me. But the young man was sad at his word, and he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. He was a young man. He had a BMW. He had a house on the hill. He had uh, Gucci pants and shoes and, you know, had lots of money. And he was, he was very wealthy. And he came to Jesus and he was a good guy. He, he wasn't, you know, he wasn't a guy that you, you wouldn't want around. He, he, he kept the commandments. He honored his father and mother. He was a good neighbor. You know, if this kid lived next door to you, he'd be a model citizen, a good person. And uh, he just had a ton of stuff and he loved his stuff. And he came to Jesus and Jesus said, go sell all that you own. Take up your cross and follow me. And it says he went away sad. He was broken hearted because he didn't want to sell his stuff. You know, you know we, say, we say it often, but just in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, 2,000 times Jesus talks about money. Money is mentioned. You know, that's more than Jesus talked about faith, prayer, and heaven combined. I think he talked about faith versus concerning faith in, in the Gospels about 400. Versus concerning praying in the gospel, about 500. Versus concerning um, um, the third one I just said, a heaven, about 300. All those combined, he talked about money more. 
Why, why, did, why does Jesus talk so much about money? Because he needs your money like Crefro Dollar and Benny Hinn. Send him your money and you'll be happy. You want to be happy, healthy, and wealthy? Because it's such, a, it's such an important issue in our lives. It's such a key issue. Jesus doesn't want your money nor need your money. He needs your heart. He wants your heart. He wants a relationship with you. But he understands that he's going to fight with your possessions and fight with your money and what's important to you in order to find your heart. And that's a wall in your life that he has to crush to get you to trust him and have the faith that you need to follow him wholly. Because if you have money, the reality is you don't need God. I know people like that. And they have so much money that they, they could live lots and lots and lots of years of their lives and never need God for anything. They don't have to worry about where their next meal is going to come from. They pretty much, they have enough money, they can solve 99% of their problems with their money. It's not until something like cancer or some illness or something that money can't fix enters their life that, that they even have to rely on God or trust God. And, and when, when you can count and rely on your money, you don't, they're just the truth is you don't need God. And when you care more about amassing money and, and, and gathering money than you do about your life with God, your life is going to be caught up in the cares of this world. What's the most valuable thing in life? I think that it's our time, right? It's our time and it's, our, it, it's the time that we have with the people. It's our time in this world. And so we, we have to live so we take the most valuable commodity that we have in our time and, and we trade it for money. And we go to work because we have to have money to live. And then we take the money that we make from the, the most valuable commodity that we have and we spend it on stuff. And, and, and I guess this stuff is supposed to add more value to our time and to the time that we spend. And we work on so much of this, this take this valuable commodity of time that we have and we go to work to buy, to get more stuff. But it doesn't make us happy. Prince died this week. 57 years old. All the money you can imagine. How'd he die? How? Alone? Face down? I don't know if the autopsy's back yet, but the, the preliminary ideas are why drug, drug overdose, that he had a drug overdose four days before he died, and that, that he fell of another one. Michael Jackson, who, who on ABC went to, to Vegas and spent $200 million through the shops as he went through and bought everything he wanted to buy in the shops, in all the fancy stuff and, and he couldn't find rest at night so they would they would put an IV in his in his arm every day and every night and give him these these drugs that he could actually sleep and then they would give him drugs to wake him up and Michael Jackson was getting ready to go to tour in in London where he was kicking off this this last tour that he was going to do he died miserable all the stuff in the world prince no different and and the stuff doesn't make you happy in Ecuador they have a monkey in Ecuador is where um, the the Auka Indians are. And we tell the story, end of the spear. That's those missionaries who went down there knowing that this was a cannibalistic tribe and they were going to bring the gospel to them. And five of them died on the beach bringing the gospel to the Indians. But the, the since then, thousands of Christians, it's opened the door for thousands of Christians and, and for this community to all get saved and, and, and the gospel to enter that place that was before impenetrable. Down there in, in Ecuador, they have a tree monkey that's, that's a staple of their diet. But the tree monkey is impossible to catch or trap or, or hunt. They, they, they can't get them. They can't, the, the tree monkey is just smarter and faster and higher. So, what, so they take a coconut and they drill a hole in the top of the coconut. And they put something shiny in the bottom of the coconut. And the hole's just big enough for the, the monkey to squeeze his hand down in there. And then when he grabs the thing shiny, he makes a fist and he can't get it out of the coconut. 
And then the hunters come and the monkeys are stuck with the coconuts on their hand that are about as big as they are. And, and they can't, and all they have to do is let go. All they have to do is let go of the stuff, pull their hand out and they're gone. But they won't do it. They try to escape with this, with this coconut and, and they're able to, to club them and, and kill them and they, they won't let go of the stuff. You know, like when the volcano erupted, right? And those pictures of people who were running from the lava and they couldn't run because they were weighed down with all that gold. You know, you hear about the guy that showed up in heaven with big, huge bags of gold. And St. Peter said, go throw it out in the asphalt, like the rest of the, the gold. It's just asphalt in, in heaven. And so you can't, you can't take the stuff with you. And God knows that money is so near and dear to our hearts. Spurgeon said, you can tell more about a man by his checkbook than, than, than about many other things in his life. How you spend your money, how you spend your time. And Jesus realized it. And he tells this rich young ruler, sell everything you have and follow me. Is, is that a blanket policy that Jesus lays out for each one of us, you and I? Is that what it takes to follow Jesus? Do you guys all, if you want to be, inherit the kingdom of God, do you have to sell everything you own and follow Jesus? Do you or not? You should know. We're talking about inheriting the kingdom of God. No, it's not a policy. It's not something that, that, but for this person, for this young man, he said, all these other things I've done, but yet he held back in this area of his life because he loved his possessions. And it said, when God told him and when Jesus challenged him, you know, I think maybe it had he wanted to do it and had he gone through it, maybe it would have been like Abraham and Isaac. And God was just testing to see if his heart was willing to serve God. And he wouldn't have had to give up all those things. But, but he loved those things more than he loved eternal life. And, and, and the Bible says that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It's, it's not the root of evil. It's the root of all kinds of evil. And it's not, money is not the root of all evil. It's the love of money. And so you can't love your money more than you love God. And part of the way you do that is you give it to him. Jesus says, or the Bible says, to bring me the tithes and the offerings. So when you bring something, that's, that's not like you're doing somebody a favor. Like you, you have what's his and you bring it back. He says, bring it back. So you bring back a portion of the storehouse. I've shared with you guys before. If I borrow, if I loan you my car on Monday and the deal is you're going to bring it back on Friday, when you show up on Friday, like you're doing me some big favor. Oh, hey, I'm bringing your car back. I'm like, no, you're not doing me a favor. Because if you don't bring it back, I'll call the cops and you, you're a thief and you'll go to jail because you stole my car. Like, you're not doing anybody a favor because you brought back the car that you borrowed. And that's the language that it uses, to bring back to the storehouse that, that, that which is God's. And then above and beyond the tithe or bringing back is a love offering. And the tithe goes to the storehouse. What do you find in the storehouse? Bread. So where you get fed is, is where the tithe goes. And then, and then above and beyond that, so if you get fed here, this is where the tithe goes. If you get fed at the First Baptist, that's where the tithe goes. That's where it belongs. Above and beyond that is an offering. And you can do and choose what you want to do with that and where you put it. And, and, and God doesn't need your money. And I never preach a broke God. You ever go somewhere and they say, if you don't give, this program's going to die. Say, thank God. Let it die. Because if God's in it, God's going to take care of it. And God doesn't need your money. It's not for him. If your theology is that he's God and he created the heavens and the earth and all that's in them, does he need your, does he need your money? not a very big God if he needs your money. He don't need your money. He needs your heart and it comes oftentimes through your money. One more verse and we're, one more section, a little quick section, we're done. Verse 23, it says, when Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard is it for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God? And the disciples were astonished at his word. But Jesus answered again and said to them, children, how hard is it for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God? 
It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Don't let nobody tell you that that was a gate in the wall. That was the, the, the camel gate, the needle gate. He's literally talking about a sewing needle and the, the hole that's in a sewing needle that you can barely get that thread through if you lick it and you, you know, get somebody that can see to put it through. And he said, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to go to heaven. And the disciples threw their hands in the air. They flipped out because of the idea that, you know, who, who can go then to heaven? Because the idea was that wealth was equated to godliness. And even in many religions, right? And it would be very pharisaical that if you, if, you're, if you have a lot of wealth, if you're blessed, that obviously means a blessing of God. And that, you know, and they said, if, if those people can't go to heaven, then who can? Oh, nobody's going to make it. And Jesus said, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to go to heaven. And in verse 26, it says, and they were gathered. They were greatly astonished, saying among themselves, who then can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, With men it is impossible, with, with God all things are possible. And then Peter began to say, See, we have left all and followed you. And Jesus answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or fathers or mothers or wife or children or lands for my sake and the gospels who shall not receive a hundredfold now and in this lifetime. So really quickly, on the camel through the eye of a needle, Jesus said it's easier for a rich man to go through the eye of a needle than, or easier for a rich man to enter heaven than for a camel. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to enter heaven. So what does that mean? If you're rich, you can't go to heaven? No, many people in the Bible were rich. Abraham was rich. Joseph of Arimathea was rich. And it's not rich and it's not money that's the problem. It's the love or the trust in money that's the problem. If you have all kinds of money and you trust in it to solve your problems, you don't have to trust in God, it's a problem. Okay, so trust the Lord with all your life. If God's blessed you financially, praise God. Give back to Him. Be generous with what He's given you. And, um, and don't trust in your money. Trust in the Lord. And then he goes on and he says, Who shall receive, verse 30, um, a hundredfold in this lifetime, houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and lands with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. And so... Um, when Lydia and I came out here, this was a verse that God used to, to encourage me in coming out here. And, and, and we left a lot. We left mother and father and brother and sister and, and people that were comfortable and things that were good. And, and this is a promise. And, and what I love about this promise is that God says, when you leave those things to serve me and you put me first in your life, and even if that means if I call you to leave family, that, that I'm going to give you more family. I'm going to give you houses and those things that are listed here. And then he says, there's this little, little line in there where he says, in this life. And I like that. You think, you know, you go and you serve God and yeah, okay, you know, the, 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 the big, you know, the, the big reward in heaven, you know, the eye in the sky somewhere and like this, this eternal reward that you can't really grasp or feel or know, but yeah, I'm going to receive a, a reward in heaven. But here he says, which is true, but here he also promises in this life. That's so cool. I can remember getting here and say, okay, Lord, I left everything for you now. Show me the money. Where's it at? In this life, right? And, and God has so blessing. And he says, mothers, fathers, brothers, sister. And, you know, within the body of Christ, I have, I have plenty of moms. I have plenty of moms who, who love me and treat me like a son and, and take care of me and make sure I got chocolate chip cookies when I need them. And plenty, plenty of brothers in Christ when all my real brothers and other, other places. And, and God provides such a family within the body of Christ that he replaces all those things. 
within the body of Christ that we need and that we have. And, and God is going to do that in a blessing as we put him first. And that's the, that's the kind of what Jesus is saying over and over and over again here. And it's consistent, right? With your money, put God first. With your life, with your people, with your relationships, put God first. And God summed it all up. Jesus summed it all up in another place when he said, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all these things shall be added unto you. Amen? Let's stand. We covet your prayers this week, people, and, and every week for uh, what God's doing here and what God wants to do is we, uh, we're facing some giants in the land and we're facing giants uh, in, the, in, in, in all of our lives spiritually. And I know some of you may be facing some giants in here today. Maybe it's in marriage. Maybe it's in finance. Maybe it's in money. And so we want to just encourage you guys to be Joshua and Caleb and if, if like me, early in the week this week, you're getting under some of the, the giants that are in your land and some of the giants that are you're facing, I just want to encourage you guys in, in having and being a Joshua and a Caleb and saying, yeah, they are giants in the land, but, but God, with God, all things are possible. And I'm going to step out in faith and God is going to, to, to slay these giants. And I don't have to. Our God will fight for us. So I want to encourage you guys in that. I want to pray for you guys. And then I want to encourage us to leave this week, step out in faith, and have the faith of a mustard seed and say to this mountain, be removed in Jesus' name, that it'll be removed. And that we take each mountain and each step for Jesus. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, we come before you and we, we thank you, God, that, that you move mountains in our lives, Jesus. We thank you, Father, that um, you care about relationships and marriage and you want us to stay married and you hate divorce. And yet, Lord, you know that, that there's just situations where, where divorce happens and that you've made provision and you love, Lord, regardless. And you, you, you heal and you restore. And God, we thank you that, that you, you care about our lives and you want our hearts. And oftentimes our, our money gets in the way of our hearts. And we, we seek making money and, and, and amassing stuff more, God, than we seek you. And when, when that gets in the way, Jesus, that you challenge us and, and you challenge this rich, rich young ruler to get rid of all of his money, Give it to the poor and follow you. And because of his love for that money, he couldn't do it. And so, God, if there's something in our lives, and maybe it's not our money, maybe it's another area of our lives, Jesus, that's, that's blocking, that's in the way, that we love more than we love a relationship with you, I pray, God, that we would lay it down, that we would not make the mistake or have the heart of this rich young ruler who went away sad, but that we would rejoice as you break us, as you mold us, as you call us to give these things and lay them at your feet. Jesus, help us to lay these things at your feet. In Jesus' name, everyone said, amen. God bless you.